Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gaming Moguls Board Gaming Podcast, your gaming podcast for aspirational gamers, the only podcast where you own an entire set of poker chips and have absolutely no idea if a straight beats a flush. I'm Mark Teske, along with my partner, Mr. Jake Kloppenstein. Hello, Jake. Hi, Mark. How you doing? I'm very well tonight. How are you? I'm doing wonderfully. We have a wonderful podcast episode for you guys this week. We're going to talk about what we played this week. We're going to talk briefly about our shelf of shame. We're going to talk about some neural network stuff. And then finally, we're going to do some data analysis, which we are completely unequipped to talk about. (laughs) Excellent, but I'm sure it'll be funny anyway. Well, we'll try. I will promise that we'll try. So to start it off, what have you been playing this week, Mark? You know, actually, it was a little bit slower week in gaming compared to last week. But being that nobody had a buddy con over the weekend, that's not terribly surprising. So uh, the beautiful part of this week is I finally got to play a bunch of games that I've been dying to play for quite a long time. Uh, one of those games being Root. Yeah. Root is that uh, game by Cole Worley, which took a lot of people by storm last year. It's it's a war game that is really shrouded in cuteness with the most unbelievable, beautiful meeples that are shaped like cute little woodland creatures. And it's really actually a pretty nasty war game where everybody right. beats each other over the head. All right. Um, well, I'm, I'm excited because I finally got to play this game and it's been on my to playlist and I've been near it for probably three or four plays like sitting at the table right next to it while you guys were playing and I never actually got to play it. So it was, it was great. For some reason, we've always had this game running right next to you. And for some reason, you've always end up running something else at the exact same moment. So <laughs> you've been pestering me for a long I time know. saying, I don't know if I'm going to get to play this mark. It's going to fall off the popularity list before I get my chance. Right. And surprisingly, it did not fall off the edge of the world. I did get to play it. Um, I really liked it. I played as the Woodland Alliance, which is kind of the um, insurgent faction, the kind of rebellion faction in it, trying to fight away the other factions. So there's four factions in the game. I'm sure you've heard of them before. There's the birds. There's the cats. There's the wandering trash panda um, guy that's kind the of a vagabond. little warrior, the vagabond. And then there's the Woodland Alliance. And so all these play different. They have completely different mechanics for them. They have little twists. It's a little asynchronous and everyone's trying to control and get their own different way to win the game. I thought it was great, though. I came in last place by a pretty large margin, but I really want to get it played again. And I'm interested to try it with the balancing releases that Cole Worley recently has posted. Yeah, so that when they first came out with it, it really wasn't intended to be horribly balanced. The idea was that players should actually make temporary alliances in order to make up for their own shortcomings. The problem is, is that it's such a well thought of game that a tournament scene has sprung up and not having balanced factions makes that uh, problematic, to say the least. So the author came out with a set of rules changes that are intended to balance the factions much better. And we haven't tried that yet. But even without that out of the box, still a fantastic game. Right. I really liked Root. Yeah, I got a chance to play the Vagabond for the first time. I'd never had the chance to play that one. And uh, I did win fairly easily, but not because of the imbalanced rule set. It just I got really, really lucky with uh, drawing the correct mission cards at the right time and being in the right place. Right. It was great. I really want to get it played again. I suggest everyone try it. It does make me feel silly because I think this game might render the coin games that I own obsolete. Um, I still have to get a Cuba Libre played with our group to see what everyone thinks about it. But this game was just so much less finicky. It has this great wrapper on it of cute little wooden components. And it was awesome. That was Root by Cole Worley. Anything else you want to say about it, Mark? 
I think the beauty of that game is if nothing else, it's a thousand times more likely to get played than any of those nifty coin games on your shelf. Right. Unless we're with a bunch of history nerds, which I don't think we really have any of those people in our group. Nope, for sure. I uh, got a chance to play another long game that I've been dying to play for a long time. Uh, one of my favorites from last year, Lisboa by Vidal Lacerda. I'm a huge fan of Vidal Lacerda games. Um, to me, they're sort of like Thanksgiving dinner. They're this big fancy thing that's an, a, an event and affair to pull out. It's beautiful and you pull it's your finest china and you set it all up all perfectly. And there's a lot of formality around it. And when you're done, you're pretty full and pretty sick of turkey and you're ready to be done with it for a while. And the big issue I wanted to play is, first off, I haven't gotten to play it since back in February. And you've only played it one other time before. And this game has probably been discussed more than just about any other game that we've only played (laughs) a couple of times. So I'm happy you got a chance to play it again. So, Jake, what did you think of this one? I give it a resounding meh. I think I might like it a little bit more at a lower player count, but with four, which is, I believe, the max player count for the game. Yep. Every action that you take in this game is kind of hard. There's a lot of moving parts in every single action and everything you do sets yourself up for a different action. It's very rare that you take an action and you turn and you get something that you immediately use. You're either building up influence or building up something else that you can use later. And due to the fact that so much of the board would change by the time it came back to me, what I had planned for with my previous action was kind of moot. So it made the game pretty tactical and just kind of, oh, what's going to give me the most points here? But me and you tied for last place, which I'm pretty happy about because (laughs) I have not played it as much as everyone else at the table. I would give this game a resounding meh, which isn't bad. I don't think it's a bad game. It's just not my cup of tea. It felt a little awkward in the way that Lisboa handled the weight of the mechanisms. I found it kind of analogous to moving a couch. It's not that heavy, but just the way that it's large and awkward and it just it didn't feel good to me. So I'm happy to play it whenever you want to play it again, that Lisboa game. It's an absolutely beautiful production by um, Eagle Griffin Games. And I'd, I'd love to try it, but I think you have three or four other Vital Lacerda games that I'd rather try above it. Yeah, for sure. It did turn out to be more tactical than I remember it being. And this was the first time I'd played with other people who have played before. Every other time I've played it, it's been a full teach for everybody at the table. So and then you're really running the game. A, yeah. Yeah. And I'm running the game. And so this is the first time I feel like I actually got to play it. And it really was a lot more tactical. There are so many moving pieces that all have to come together at the same time that, you know, five of the six things happen and the six doesn't. Then all of a sudden you're left with a tactical decision on how do I recover from this? And now what do I do? I was planning on building a public building and scooping up a bunch of rubble cubes and completing that row and doing all this chain of stuff. And I get there and somebody takes the spot I was planning on taking. And now my entire plan has gone out the window and I end up doing something silly, like just producing some goods. Right. And it was also kind of frustrating too, because certain plans that I had made and things I've done to try to help me by the time it come back around to it. So I'd do something in Lisboa, like I'd get a place down a scoring tile with the intention to lay a building there at the next go around. By the time I come back to that building round, Someone's already placed a building there and I can't even play a building even if I wanted to because the influence completely changed. Yep. And so it's it gets to the end and I think my score was 82 by the end of the game and I got 12 points as the last turn of the game just seeing if I could find something. So that was kind of frustrating, <laughs> but I'm, I'm happy to try it again. From my first sure. play of it, I think it's a better game 
However, it did confirm to me that it's not really a game for me, if that makes sense. Yep, fair enough. We actually got a chance to play Trade on the Tigress on last Wednesday night. Mm-hmm. The uh, Jeff Engelstein, Ryan Sturm design, uh, which is actually sort of a different take on the popular game Sidereal Confluence almost with uh, right. some fixes to it. Right. I really so, like it. It was one yeah, of the only games. It was one of the only games I actually picked up from Gen Con that was a large box game. I'm a really big fan of Tasty Minstrel Games. They do a great job with the graphic design and component quality. And they're the publishing company that printed Trade on the Tigress. So I didn't really know anything about it going into it. I just thought it looked pretty. They were excited about it. I got it for a little bit of a steal on the last day. And I really liked it. Um, I think this is my third or fourth play of the game. And every time it gets a little good. But I do have a couple of complaints with it. Okay. To start, the graphic design is beautiful. It looks very pretty. But it's completely unusable. So there's two different types of production goods in the game. So just as a little bit of background on this game is it's a real-time trading game. There's five rounds in the game. You first produce stuff with some cards that you get. Then you trade these around to try to build sets that you can trade in for victory points. That And so it's a real-time trade. There's a certain bluffing aspect to it. You have to be truthful about what the every card has two different aspects to it. One top is the actual good. On the bottom, there's a bunch of ulterior motive kind of things. There's two different tracks you're going on the game. One being religion. It's two different ways you can go. You can either go towards the good guy and the evil guy. I don't know. There's a red guy and a blue guy. And then there's also a government track, which is where you're going in between democracy and dictatorship. And so the top of the card will say like goat, but the bottom of the card may come with barbarians and a victory point, or it might come with a culture point, or it might come with moving one way or another. It might come with some diplomacy, which is hilarious to say, does anybody want fish with diplomacy or not diplomacy? Pardon me. Democracy. My main complaint about this game is all of the icons on it are minuscule. It's like and they're, they're, fancy, they're fancy, too. Right. And so they're very detailed and they're incredibly small. So what I was originally saying is there's two different types of production goods in the game, basic and I think merchant goods. Yep. And both the symbols for that are very shrunk. I'm talking five millimeter by three millimeter pictures of the back of the card. They couldn't have just put an A or <laughs> I pretty a much B. go by lighter and slightly darker. Right. And one looks like a B house. It's just it's very frustrating. The other thing I kind of don't like about this game is it's played over five rounds and every round you get some more cards. You'll at least get two cards to add to your tableau of production stuff and special mm-hmm. abilities. And towards the last round of the game, everyone has like a freaking three foot by two foot area of just cards face up about what they have special <laughs> abilities. And you have to constantly walk around stuff, isn't it? Yeah. and point out, well, what do you have? Is that your special ability you're going to use on me? But all in all, I thought it was good. And I'd like to hear what you think about trade on the Tigris versus sidereal confluence. Sure. Well, as kind of an overhead thought on that one, it's a bit unfair every time we pull out trading games in our group because you and I both have a long background in sales and right. uh, <laughs> are very extroverted people that are very social. And that's not the case with uh, some of the other people in our gaming group. So every time we pull out a trading game, there's a few eye rolls and mercifully, they're nice enough to play them with us. But I yeah, feel they're, a they're little bit friends. bad. I, I feel like we're taking advantage of them because it usually comes down to either me or you winning it every single time. Uh, that is correct. Of the three plays, I've actually only played it three times. Of the three plays, I have won twice and you've won once. There you go. So uh, differences on it. Um, 
trade on the Tigris is absolutely easier to get to the table than Sidereal Confluence. And I'd say the main reason for that is Sidereal Confluence is wickedly asymmetric. And anytime you have a wickedly asymmetric game, whether it's Sidereal Confluence or Root or Vast or something where you pretty much have to explain the game to somebody (laughs) just so they know how their dude works, that's going to just make it inherently tougher to get to the table. And I think that that's one issue with Sidereal Confluence. It's always going to make it tougher to get to the table than Trade on the Tigris. Now, that's also one of the blessings of the game, too, is that everybody's sort of playing their own game and everybody has their own strengths or weaknesses on how they can trade. And something that may be completely garbage to me might be the most valuable thing on the planet to you because your special power needs to do those things. And I kind of shrug and I go, yeah, whatever. Here you go. (laughs) Take all you want. By the way, can you hook me up with some, uh, you know, technical resources? The downside is, is that if you're complaining about the graphic design and trade and the Tigris being bad, Oh, hold sidereal confluence says hold my beer. Oh my god. Well, at least Trade on the Tigris is pretty. It just isn't the most usable in a real-time game. Correct. Which is the only frustrating thing about it. Which ironically, I'd say sidereal confluence is more usable yet far uglier. Yeah. Does that make sense? But like also a it's hard to confuse a, you know, big white square with a small red circle. It's right. ugly, but it works. Which is exactly what I wish they would have done a little bit more with trade on the Tigris. Just the confusing thing about sidereal confluence is you don't really know what anybody's doing. Like, yeah, because everybody's exactly so touch, different. Everyone's so asymmetrical. You don't know if you're getting a good deal, at least with trade on the Tigris. You all start at the same point. You know what kind of cards are in those decks. You know the kind of bottom results. There's a couple of mean cards in it, but I really like it. I think this game will get to the table a bunch more. It's pretty fast, um, pretty easy to teach, and it's a hoot just shouting at your friends for a while. Yep, and I I am going to, as a goal in the new year, to 3D print all the resources for Sidereal Confluence because I want a little oil barrel, not just a dumb black cube. That's a thing. No, but I can make it a thing. I'm well, clever. You can probably get it through one of those websites too, like a Meeple Source or something along those lines. Yeah, that's something I need to look into. Right. So well, that's Trade in the Tigris and Sidereal Confluence. We also wrapped up a game of 1850 this week online with some new people from Chicago we're playing with on Board 18. And we are going to have to start and, launching some new games here pretty quick. I we're know, running out. I know. It's crazy. Um, so as we probably have talked about before, Mark and I are big fans of playing 18xx games, which is a system of economic train games online. And there's a pretty decent community for it. And what you do here is there's a website called Board18 that manages the actual board and track values and all that, not track values, but stock values on it. And then you have a Google spreadsheet that you all share and you put your money in there and it's really fun. And so I've always wanted to play an 18xx game based in our region where we live in Minnesota and the upper Midwest. And I was looking online one day and I found 1850 by Bill Dixon. Um, that is exactly that. So it has pretty much the whole upper Midwest. It has Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa. I think it goes all the way down to Missouri, like Kansas City, yeah. yeah, Kansas City area. I didn't play anything down there. I was um, James J. Hill incarnate there. I owned both the Great Northern and the Northern Pacific, and I won. Yeah, you were Mr. Duluth Fargo, whereas right. I kind of took the, uh, I, I sort of took the center of the map and was running the UP and the Milwaukee Road, running from Chicago all the way across to like Sioux Falls. Right. I really liked 1850, though. I thought it had a bunch of really interesting concepts in it. Um, I bought a copy 
I'm putting that in air quotes. I bought a copy from Golden Spike Games, who I've never purchased a game for, but they're like a lot of these 18xx games, handmade. And he said his lead time when I purchased it was anywhere from three to four months, which means that it'll be coming in sometime in February. Fingers um, crossed. Hopefully, but I really liked it. 1850 was a great game. I loved having the location. It was kind of weird. We didn't actually get to the end trains. We didn't get to the 12 trains, which would have really hurt me, but I came out to an early lead and just held on and barely squeaked out with a win. I did not read the rules close enough on this one, and I missed some key moves kind of early in the game. Like, I didn't know about being able to issue and reissue and rebuy and figured it out when other people did it when it was too late for me to do it. So I starved on money somewhere around the three and four trains, and I managed to recover and put on a respectable showing, but I missed missed the shifting into second gear, I think is what happened. Absolutely. Um, I thought it was great, though. Fun game. Yeah, no, absolutely. Love to play it again. We actually also played Dice Fishing Roll and Catch. We played that before we played Lisboa on Sunday, um, which was awesome. Uh, take take that we back. We. Oh, yeah, you didn't play. Mark showed up a no, little late. No, it's on my list of stuff to play. It's making me crazy. So I played this with the Johns. There, We played Lisboa with two Johns on, on Sunday. So Dice Fishing is a great game. It's by Satoru Nakamura. Um, it's printed by Homo Sapiens Lab. And we are unashamedly huge fans of small of well, Japanese imported games of any sort, especially small box Japanese imported games. Absolutely. And this fits the bill. Um, this game would be everyone's who's from Minnesota's uncle's favorite game if they knew it existed. So it has a fishing theme, which is huge in our neck of the wood, land of 10,000 lakes. And what you're doing here is there's all these little dice. And so what you're going to do is you're you, you have five D6, a D10 and a D20. And on your turn, or not on your turn, on the turn, someone's going to flip over the top deck of the card, and that's what everyone's fishing for at the same time. It'll say, like, the number seven on it. It'll say a type of fish. Each card is worth a certain amount of victory points, and it'll say a certain dice result that you need. So let's say it says a seven, and it says a one and a four. That means you need to at least, the cumulative value of all of your dice needs to at least be a seven. And amongst your pool of dice, you need to have a one and a four. So then what everyone does hidden behind their screens is bids a certain number of dice that they think you can do it in. So let's say I choose 3d6 and Mark chooses 2d6 and a d10. I'll explain what the d10 and the d20 do in just a moment. Then you reveal whoever has the lowest number of dice rolls first. If you have the same number of dice, you roll at the same time. If you're using a d10 or a d20, those both count as like a dice and a half. So they go a little later. And then you roll and then you see if you can get it. So if I rolled my 3d6 and didn't get it, then Mark would roll. So when you roll a D10 or a D20, you have an option to either make it a plus or minus one die or make it a reroll. So you can kind of game that. But the downside is if you ever roll that die, it gets taken out for the next round. And you also go later after people that use the same number of dice. But it was a great so game. So Jake? Yeah? Future Mark might edit this chunk out later on. Yes. But how much do you think it would cost for us to get the rights to that game and put out a Minnesota version of it? Oh my God. Probably a lot. It's a pretty well-liked game. It'd be so good, though. Not imported into the U.S. Japanese release. I know. I don't know. It'd be awesome. All you'd have to do is put some flannel on it. Sell it to Cabela's. Oh, Oh. (laughs) it would be in everybody's cabin. I know. You heard it here first. The first release from Gaming Mogul Games. (laughs) Dice Fishing, the Minnesota edition. I don't have enough time already. I don't know if I'm going to start printing games, but highly suggest this game. You can get it over on Meeple Source. Um, they have a couple of copies. I actually just bought a copy for my in-laws. Um, it was 25 bucks. Awesome game. You could probably print and play it pretty easily too. You just would need five D six and four different colors, or five different colors. And then a D 20 and a D 
D10 in five different colors. But highly suggested. I can't wait to play with you, Mark. Speaking of rolling games, I finally got a chance to teach you one of my favorite rolling games, Ganshun Clever. God, I love that game. Also a small box imported dice game. This one from Germany. Designed by Wolfgang Warsh, it's a part of one of the infamous uh, Mr. Roland Wright's collection Mm -hmm. of games. (laughs) Um, 2018 was definitely the year of the Roland Wright, and uh, Ganshun Clever is one that hasn't made its way to the U.S. yet. Um, I'm told it will be published uh, after the first of the year in the U.S. under a different name, something like, you know, the Clever Fox or something like that. It's a really fun game. It's utterly themeless. It's, you know, you're trying to master red and get, you know, balance your colors out and so forth. But the beauty of the game is it's just combo delightful deliciousness where you are really playing the game great when you put you fill in one box, which causes another box to trigger, which causes a third box to trigger and a fourth box to trigger. And suddenly you got four dice worth of rolls in all in one move. And that really escalates your score. And it feels so good. Jake, what'd you think of Ganshun Clever? So this is one of those games that was kind of like Root that I was adjacent to, but never got to actually play it. Um, I even sat down to play it once, but then I ended up having to run something else at a different night. But it's great. What's also cool about it is it's devoid of theme. You're just kind of doing accounting with some dice and the dice selection action in it is really neat and the fact that other people get to use your dice it has a couple of confusing rules that i think needs a player two to really digest but sure. i really liked it it was fun i'll play it anytime you know like yahtzee has no theme but right. that doesn't make it a not fun game to play it's it's still an extremely no, fun game to play i think even it's great theme because if i'm going to play another roll and write like let's say i'm going to play welcome to with my family i know it's a flip and write sorry kirk um, but if I'm going to play that with my grandparents, they're going to be like, why am I doing this for a house? I don't know what's going on. But in Gonshaw and Clever, you roll some dice. It's like complicated Yahtzee, right? Yep. And I think yep. everybody would you like can, it. You can teach it pretty quickly. And also, I would highly recommend, if this is your thing, the iPhone app for Ganshon Clever is a solitaire game. And it's great. It will teach you. It, the rules are a little different for solitaire. So you'll have to relearn it if you're playing with other people. But it still gives you that exact same sort of feel to it. And it's a pretty inexpensive app. So check out the iPhone app for Ganshon Clever if you just want to get a taste of what that one's like. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy it on Amazon. I need that game. Maybe it'll get here yeah, before. It's super fun. That, that's, an, again, another one that is everybody's favorite cabin game kind of right. thing. Well, this is the next game is the only one we didn't play together this weekend. So I'm sad. Why don't you tell no, us about so, 13 days? Sunday night, hanging out with my 12 year old son who likes to game. And he was thinking he was kind of eyeing up the Xbox and he had spent enough time on the Xbox for one day. And I said, buddy, we're playing a game. And he goes, dad, can you teach me Twilight Struggle? <laughs> I went, uh, okay, that's <laughs> ambitious, but you know, sometime, but maybe not at eight o'clock on a Sunday night uh, when you have school tomorrow morning and so forth. But tell you what I got. I got something that pushes a lot of the same buttons in a more simplified introductory fashion. And I pulled eight, 13 days off. Uh, 13 days is a two player head to head game by Oscar Harding Grunerud and Daniel Skold Peterson. It's a head-to-head two-player game that is specifically about the Cuban Missile Crisis. It has the same action card versus action point mechanism that Twilight Struggle uses, and the same push-pull, tug-of-war point scoring thing, and the same if you push it into nuclear war, you lose mechanism. And But it plays in well, an hour rather than four, <laughs> and has a, lot, has a lot of the same things. I, I hadn't played it in a year, and boy, it was a lot of fun. 
Yeah, so I actually had this game. Did I teach it to you? Did you have it before me or did we buy it I concurrently? Did. So no, you had it before me, taught it to me. And then I, and then I put it. it on my wish list and my secret Santa from Board Game Geek bought it for me oh, last year. Cool. So I like the way it looks. I love the box size of it. I just don't really think these two player games are really for me. I had a good time playing it. It was just I had a tough time teaching it and I didn't really internalize the rules very well. And I'm just happy you own a copy because anytime I want to play now and don't want to actually break out the Twilight Struggle heaviness, complicatedness. We can just play that one and it'll take 35 minutes. Right. I think I'm probably more likely to get two player games to the table than you are just because of the fact that I have a larger built in (laughs) pool of players at my house. Right. I don't see Anna pulling out and playing 13 days. She's great and she likes games, but that is so far from her wheelhouse. That might be the most opposite (laughs) game for her. This came up recently because there's a pre-order going on now for Yokohama Duel. And I'm really conflicted on this one because I love Yokohama so much. It's one of my absolute favorite games. And there's a dual version coming out with it. Wow. And it's quite expensive because it's an imported pre-order. Well, did you get an email today? And it played? What? Did you get an email today from TMG? Tasty Menstrual Games? No. I got one today. Regarding? Tasty news. Hit me. We would like to wish you a happy holidays. 2019 is going to look like be busier with many days coming down the publishing pipeline. I'm not giving much away. We would like to give a not-so-subtle hint to a game that you can expect to see on Kickstarter from us in January, and it's a picture of Yokohama Duel. Yeah! Okay, problem solved. (laughs) So, there's a couple (laughs) options. It'll probably be cheaper from TMG Games, but it's not going to have that hipster, I owned it before it was cool aspect. What do you care about? You know what? I'm probably cooler with actually getting the real English translation to it from Kickstarter and waiting a little bit longer rather than having having to have the hipster Japanese version. Right. But I'm excited to play it, too, as Yokohama was both on our top five lists. We're going to have to get this one played. Yep. That's that. That's that sounds awesome. Wonderful. So speaking of games we've been dying to play (laughs) and some that we have played and some that we haven't played, we have been having an argument for oh, going on a month now about something that both of us thought was a commonly understood thing. (laughs) And it turns out it was anything but. And ironically, depending on the group that we asked about it, we got different answers, too. So, right. Let's not rehash the argument. Let's not do that. I don't think anyone needs to hear this in short. But we do need to let people know what the argument is. The argument about is what exactly is the definition of a shelf of shame? You know, it's a commonly used term regard somehow defining games that you haven't played or that are that you own and haven't played. And there's a lot of discrepancy on what it is. So we've decided that it means different things, different people. So we have taken on our own personal (laughs) definitions of it. Yeah. So what's your wrong definition of it? If you don't mind telling the group. Oh, man. (laughs) So background. It always used to reference games that were still in shrink wrap. Like, oh, I feel so bad. I've got 17 games on my shelf that are still in shrink wrap. So that very much connotated that it was a game that I own and have not played my copy of because it's on shrink wrap. And I moved that forward into the shelf of shame land that my shelf of shame are games that I own and have not played right. my copy of. So if right. and then I mine, played your copy, my copy is still on the shelf of shame, but I've played the game. Right. And then my opinion on it is just my unplayed games. It doesn't have to be my copy. Sometimes it does depend on when I owned the copy. But for the most part, if it if I go on Board Game Geek and I click plays, if I have a play recorded on it, it's not on my shelf of shame. So quick so update. So I feel bad for you, Jake? 
because you Wait, now have 14,000 games on your shelf of shame. Good luck with that. False, because I don't own them, Mark. I still have to own them. <laughs> you just said <laughs> that you wanted to play. That I own, because it's Board Game Geek, my collection. I apologize. <laughs> I did not explain it well. Um, and the reason for this is my board game collection's pretty forward-looking. I'm a fairly active board game trader. And if I've played a game, I kind of know what it has to offer and whether or not it actually deserves a spot on my shelf. So as it stands now on my... I'm not even going to call it a shelf of shame. It's my unplayed games list that I own. I have 15 games. I'm not going to name all of them. That'd be boring for everybody. But I did highlight three that I really want to get to the table before the end of the year. The first one is Blend Coffee Lab. Speaking about very bougie Japanese games that no one's heard of. This one's from Sashi and Sashi, um, designed by Sashi. It's a set collection trick-taking game where you're making coffee blends. Huge coffee guy. Thought it'd be perfect. The next yep. one that Mark is adding as we're chatting is Deca Slayer, which is a very nice gift from my very nice friend Mark. Yeah, when where'd he went you to get Japan. that? From my oh, nice friend Mark from? when he went to Japan. Yeah, the issue and is the... mule at home. I know. I need to check the rule book. The issue is the cards... Are in Japanese. ...are not all explained. <laughs> and the print is like a fancy print job, the file that's on BGG. So maybe I should get it sent into somewhere commercially and get actually a real rule book to it in English. But I'd love to play Deca Slayer. It's pretty looking. Most of my shelf of shame is games that'll take, I don't know, 15 minutes to play and teach. It's pretty embarrassing. I'd probably say there's at least six of the games on there that are sub 15, 30 minute plays. The other one that I have on there is North American Railways by Peter Peter Sylvester, which is a kind of economically themed game that plays in under 45 minutes. That is kind of like 18xx. You buy shares and you pay out certain amounts. Should be interesting. And the final one is a big beast of a game that has like, I think, 83 pages of rules in it. It's Arkwright printed by Capstone Games and um, designed by Stefan Reisthaus. I've heard it referred several times recently as Spreadsheet the Game. Right. Which we like. We literally play spreadsheet games. I don't know if that's not... Arkwright should be absolutely up our up our alley. Yep, I, I predict we're going to like it, but we're going to have to buck up and, and, and dive into it. I know. I have the opposite problem. And again, I'm not going to go into the canonical list on my shelf of shame. The items on my shelf of shame aren't a pile of little games that I could all buzz through in a night. Mine are monstrously heavy beasts that ha- that are sitting there for very good reasons, that I have a limited chance to play some of these. These are cornerstone games that likely will take an entire afternoon to play. I'm going to go in easiest to get to the table to <laughs> hardest to get to the table order. Chicago Express, probably easiest to get to the table of that bunch. That's the short, you know, that's sub hour. I, I'm not worried about getting that one to the table. Which you've played with me at least three times. I have, but. But we, it's been my copy. We have referenced, we have a, mine's still in shrink wrap, so that's a problem. <laughs> now I feel so bad because now I need to, every single time we get together, I have to make sure you bring your copy of games that we both own. Either that or you have to sneak into my game closet and rip all the shrink wrap off. Right. Well, I did try to actually give you my copy of In a Grove. We both, a small box wink game. We both had it. And I was like, I'll give you my copy. This is yours now. You just owe me a copy of your copy and shrink. And he said, no. Do you know how hard you make it to be a good friend, Mark? You make it really hard. All right. Yeah, that was the least of my worries, man. I have, I have kids that are always willing to play that kind of stuff. So I can, I can get that out at any point. I bet you they'd like it. It'd be an interesting way to explain money management, too. Sure. The uh, Chicago Express. Yeah, that that's one I do want to get out and teach them to, uh, how to play. 
probably more concerning uh, are the uh, Uwe Rosenberg twins. I, I made a point of collecting all the big box Uwe Rosenberg games because I like them and I've always been a big fan. And these were a couple that I was missing. Uh, I'm talking about Lahav and Aura and Labora. I picked them up on sale from the Always Awesome Level Up Games in South St. Paul several months ago. Aura and Labora has been out of print forever found a sale on it and brought a copy home and there it sits in shrink wrap. So uh, Lahav, we're going to change that this week. That's getting played Wednesday night. So hopefully we might have six people for Wednesday. So we might have to break it into groups, which will just kill you because I like Lahav. I'd love to play it. The art's really cute on it. I think a lot of our friends will really like it if they haven't played it yet. Yep, I think so, too. Uh, next up, Founders of Gloomhaven. You know, I bought this one slight unseen, and unfortunately, people kind of pigpiled on it after the fact it came out. And that's <laughs> demotivated me from ever getting out to the table. But now I've seen a counter backlash of people that said, you know, I've seen the backlash and we like it a lot. So I probably just need to try it and see how it goes. Well, you should be the, the neutral backlash saying this is a completely adequate game. That was yep. fine. <laughs> It was fine. Just have no strong opinions on it, but be very vocal in your no strong opinions on it. Also in the I've played your copy, but I haven't played mine. Indonesia. Um, AKA Jake's aneurysms incoming. Yep. Continue. Yep. yep. Um, (laughs) One that neither of us have played. uh, Vita Lacerda's Vinos. Why I own a Vita Lacerda game that I haven't played yet. I have no idea. So that's on the short list. And then we're into the big boys. If those weren't big boy enough, 1873 Harzban, the 18XX. It's kind of not an 18XX, but still manages to take up an afternoon and change. We will play that one within the next month. That's our next train Thursday offering. So, yeah, it's not only 18XX where you run trains, but you also run mines and you build mining equipment and your mining equipment rusts. But you can't trade mining equipment between companies because it's permanently built into a mountain. Yeah, that makes sense. Sounds so fun. I'm really excited for it. And it's one that was printed by our friend Scott over at All Board Games. And it looks beautiful. I'm excited to try. Oh, for sure. So that's coming up soon. What's the next one, Mark? And the big daddy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the one I've I've bolded and highlighted a thousand times on our uh, little sheet here. Yep, this is a, this is literally on 100 point font, which either means it's the biggest one of the of them all, or it's the one he <laughs> wants to play the most of them all. Uh, could be either. And we're referencing High Frontier Third Edition. <laughs> uh, it's rocket science. The game. Several rule books, which really aren't rule books. They're sort of example books and reference books. You sort of have to reverse engineer how to play the game. It takes up every square inch of my four foot by seven foot game table. And it's so beautiful. And I really want to play it because it's Kerbal Space Program times a thousand. Oh, I want to play it so bad. So right. this game is for sure going to be too smart for me. Oh, but yeah, I cannot wait to just try and explode everything on takeoff. I don't know if that's a mechanic in the game. I'm not even sure it's a game. It's it's probably a simulation more than anything else. You know, and you win if you do the simulation better than somebody else. Right. But that sounds fun. I, I really want to do it. I think it should be something we do maybe around some snowy afternoon where your kids are off doing something and we can just show up at a game store and oh, post up and just figure it out for like an afternoon, maybe while playing another game or something. A snow day <laughs> of High Frontier the whole day. That would be so great. Right. All right. So moving on, um, that's been a we've thrown a lot of name, a lot of board game names at you over the past few minutes here. Now we're going to throw a lot more at you. And this is entirely lighthearted. And these games don't exist. And I dearly wish they do because they're so great. We both follow board game geek forums as well as Reddit quite a bit. And there's some gold out there once in a while. And 
One popped up yesterday or the day before of somebody that fed all 17,000 game titles on BoardGameGeek into a neural network and said, okay, you know about board game names. Now generate me some new board game names. And it it's absolute gold. Like people, publishers need to get on this list right away because right. I want to play all of these games. This is Keyforge, the game name. That's the best <laughs> That's part exactly about Keyforge is. is the random names on the back. <laughs> it is, but it's so much smarter than Keyforge. Like Keyforge needs to buy this name generator because it's awesome. Right. Let me just list out some of the uh, some of the better ones on the list here. I'm not going to go through the entire list. Pirates of Gettysburg. That sounds great. <laughs> Doctor Who, the American Revolution. Oh, that's hilarious. Africana Scrabble Battles. That sounds like Mombasa. Like, it sounds like if you made Mombasa into an iPhone game, that'd be Africana Alexa- Scrabble Battles. Alexander Fister's first word game. <laughs> it's like if Alexander Fister and uh, uh, the guy uh, the, the guy that did Codenames got together and co Oh, Shavattle. got together and did a game. There's also a new release by Fantasy Flight, Star Wars, Star Wars Edition. <laughs> oh, that's funny. God, um, that's great. Alien Architects. I'm sure that game exists. It has to exist. Oh, that, that has to. I think there's Alien Ar- Artifacts. I'd be surprised if there's not Alien Architects. Yeah, and it, it, it's put out by Czech Games Edition. I guarantee it. <laughs> the, the game, I and, oh, the next two games are the ones I want to be real more than anything else. Okay, now, Jake, your favorite game. Just your favorite quick uh, game, just off the tip of your head. Oh, quick game. Uh, Teach you. No, Evolving Dice. Oh, race for, r- Roll for the Galaxy. Okay, the non-dice version of it. Race for the Galaxy. Make it a World War II theme happening in Germany. Uh, race to Nazi the Reich. For, oh, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> oh, that'd be that's so hilarious. great. Um, and it's pair, you know, highlighting all the struggles of the Russians getting to space. That's, of course, the, 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 the massive hit Space Moscow. I love God, that's that so one. Funny. What's um, funny is most of these are a little weird, but they're they sound right. You know, oh, I don't so know if realistic. that just means board games are so easy to 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 name or what. But yep, um, this next one, pretty sure, is a GMT release coming up. It's about to be P five hundred called Chaos in Canada. <laughs> What's that called? Does, does the yellow vest protest make its way to Canada or something? <laughs> yep. Um, new legacy game, Chronicles of Checkers. Oh, that's actually funny. That's just called teaching your kid what it's like to learn pain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Scrabble Commander, the Game of Crimes. Okay, that's weird. Oh, we got another FFG release right here. Star Wars, Elves of the Ancient War, 1945 through 1965 through 1805. Oh, that makes sense. Three different time zones that it's all through. Yep. That's um, funny. And uh, okay, so small box stocking stuffer game. Don't pet your car. By the makers of Exploding Kittens. That actually should be an Oink game. Oh, that is an I'm Oink sure game. that could be one. Don't pet your car. Kind of mistranslated from Japanese. Right, where it's like it probably is a meaning. It actually has a, it's a real turn of phrase over there, but it's nothing here. Yep. And finally, another, the, the last one I'm going to bring up here is another FFG release. Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars, battle card game. Three Star Warses. That's how you know that it really is a good Star Wars game. How many Star Warses are in it? That's funny. I do think it's a matter of time before we actually have a computer designed board game. Yep. Come on, nerds. Get on that. Figure it out. <laughs> so those are those are some of my favorites. I just uh, those are so realistic. And I realized that I actually wanted to play most of those games. That's when I realized that actual board game <laughs> Uh, naming is a complete meaningless drivel at that point when you a computer does something that sounds just as desirable right. as what humans are doing. 
Right. Well, and also I was thinking the other day when we were chatting about 18xx games, we must sound like we're speaking in code talk. Have you played 1861? Well, it's like 1867 or I haven't no, played 1867. No, I mean, it's more like 1853 for sure. Right, right, right. Oh, that has this and this and this from 1843. We just must sound like weirdos. <laughs> Is that the one that takes place in Vladivostok or the one that takes place in Mombasa? Oh, yeah, that, it's the African one. What the heck are they talking about? <laughs> Gosh. Oh, well, I guess we just alienate the whole world. Yeah, silly stuff. Speaking of new age technology that we don't really understand. Yes, sir. I found an awesome thread. Actually, this was emailed to me by a data science friend of mine saying, look at how neat this is. Um, I think it was also posted on Reddit, but there's a gentleman, I believe. Um, I apologize. I don't know this person. So the name is Dinesh Vatvani. Gesundheit. And they are a Python. Yeah, I know. I apologize for the mispronunciation of your name, sir, if you listen to us or ma'am. And they are a Python and data analysis blog. And so what they did is they took a whole bunch of information that's from BoardGameGeek and they did some pretty awesome analysis on it. We'll have a link to the actual article here, but I thought I'd at least summarize it because it does some really interesting analysis from some stuff that we've started with. So there's two different parts that have been published so far. I hope there's be more published so far, but the first part kind of explains what BGG is and kind of what it does. But the first thing it does is it explains what the kind of sampling biases are in the data set. So it just says kind of what the most popular games that are owned by everybody. And these are the ones you're going to think the top five are Catan, Carcassonne, Pandemic, Dominion, Seven Wonders, those kind of games all the way down. Then he goes into discuss the golden age of board gaming. And you hear this so many times spoken in podcasts and in all sorts of media that we're going through something. And there is a broad exponential increase in board games coming out each year. And apparently the Moore's law equivalent, which is the law that states that computing power will double every X, Y, Z years, there will be the number of board games published over the course of a year to double every 12.6 years. So we are still growing. We are growing exponentially and there are so many more games coming out. The games are also, Oh, well, go ahead, Mark. And on that note, I just saw a statistic, a factoid come out regarding the number of Kickstarted games and the amount of money raised by board games by Kickstarter and the number of successful Kickstarted campaigns. And it was records across the board in 2018. So anybody that thinks that board games are past their prime and dying, you should look at the no numbers. Way. I maybe. just think all of our shelves are full. I think that might be a true statement, but there's still more people coming in every single day. Um, For sure. And what's also interesting is the games are getting better. So over the last, I think, 2002, it's, he says, there has been games that have keep on objectively getting better, averaging the av- average rating over a year. What's also neat, and this is kind of what's talked to a little bit more down the line, but the games have gotten more complex with time. And it's actually been a pretty stark u- uptick in complexity in the last three or four years. We went up in full pretty much point in average weight in the last three years. Interesting. Or yeah, half I can point. See that. It goes from 2.2 to, yeah, 2.8 roughly. What's also interesting is he pulls all of the mechanics that you can tap from BGG and the biggest gainers and losers in the last, um, I think, 20 years of games that have changed is... Hand management is very much more a thing that comes on average game. And then I think we could all guess which is the mechanic that has gone down the least in proportionality of released games per year. I got this. Let me guess. Let me guess. Yeah. 
Roll and move. Got it. It actually is spin and move, Mark. It's roll slash spin and move. So I'm going to give you half points for that okay. one. Um, kind of along the All same right. line is themes have changed over the last 20 years. Trivia has gone down pretty much the same level that roll slash spin and move has gone down. And then fantasy sure. has completely increased in the way that hand management has. I really suggest clicking this link and actually. Where does Cthulhu fit on that map? I don't know. I think it probably counts. And zombies. Right. I think fantasy might count for all of those. Let's see. Okay. Um, I don't think. Well, you know, I could absolutely see that. Trivia was really hot 20 years right? ago. That was in the heyday of Trivial Pursuit. So so there is a horror category. You look at all of the party games at that point in time, most of them involve some sort of factoid or trivia or uh, some pop culture reference. So that makes perfect sense to right. me. No, it absolutely makes sense. And those games still do come out. They're actually still about 4% to 5% of our releases each year, but that's probably just Trivial Pursuit for XYZ new thing, right? Um, sure. Zombies actually does have its own own thing. It seemed to grow from 0% or just above 0% to about 1.5% in the last 20 years. Um, but <sighs> seems way more than not that. that. Yeah, you'd think it would be, but there is also a horror category, so that must be where those are. All the games that you complain about, like the generic sci-fi theme or generic zombie actually isn't that big of a portion of games. Maybe there's you can have multiple tags on BGG. Well, I think I think it's not that if you look at it as a percentage of all the games, it's still low. But I think if you look at it in the percentage of games that came out in the past three to five years, it would be much, much higher. Than right. That. Absolutely. But yeah, no, no, even, even though. No, that's that's each year what the percentage is in 2010. Apparently, no. zombie was only it was less than two percent of board games released. I also don't think all games actually have tags, but again, this is what you can expect. The level of professionality from gaming moguls, very little preparation. I did read the article a handful of times, but all of these numbers added together, I don't think adds up to hundred percent. So maybe everything doesn't have a theme. Yeah. Well, I'm guessing they're leaving non-interesting ones out or something right. like there's, that. There's, there's a good list. I really suggest clicking through this one because it helps explain the kind of more interesting one, which is part two complexity bias and BGG. And by the way, before we get into this one, let's let, let me set the stage for a second here. Board Game Geek website, if you're listening to the show, you know what it is. They rank everything due to a highly controversial algorithm, which is very susceptible to shenanigans, trends over time and shenanigans. Yeah. So like if something becomes super hot for a period of time, it will cause it to rise faster than it would otherwise. And it's also a there's a massive amount of selection bias there in that the people that are most engaged with it tend to like a certain amount of, of games. Furthermore, one of the biggest problems is it doesn't, and I might be, I'm, I might be uh, <laughs> spoiling the lead on this one, but one of the biggest problem is, is it does not separate artistic achievement from just how well liked the game is. Right. So because you only give it a one through a, a ten. Problem too. That's it. And so if you, the net net of that is, if you look at where it stands today, the top twenty games are plugged up with some very masterfully designed games that tend to be awfully difficult to get your average family member to play. Right. Which is kind of the interesting thing about this. So the other thing that's very widely discussed in the Board Game Geek community is the BGG Board Game Geek Top 100 list. So you just go on Board Game Geek, click games. It actually rates them in a way that is the algorithmic determination of how good of a game it is. And so what's interesting is I actually haven't looked at this in a really long time. And the top 10 is completely not what I thought it'd be. Why don't we just read that off real quick just to just to kind of show the readership kind of or the listenership kind of what it is. But 
The top 10 right now is Gloomhaven, Pandemic Legacy, Through the Ages, A New Story of Civilization. I'm sorry for rattling these off rapid fire. Terraforming Mars, Twilight Struggle, Star Wars Rebellion, Scythe, Gaia Project, Great Western Trail, and Terra Mystica. Those, for the most part, are some pretty meaty games. None of them are like crazy heavy or anything, but they are not good intro games. I don't think I'd buy this. None of the yeah, none of those are intro games. Pandemic Legacy, maybe, but you have to trust that the person. So I have a friend who's not that interested in board games that or is just starting to becoming interested in board games that I'm buying some gifts for for Christmas. And I don't think I'd buy him any of these games. Maybe Pandemic Legacy. And I think that's a good touchstone on how heavy it is. So our boy Dinesh, he saw this and he decided to flatten the curve. So if you look at a top certain amount of games, I think he took the any game that has at least 100 votes and graph them the average rating versus complexity, there's a pretty evident linear increase. As games get more complex, they become more light. There's probably a myriad of lurking variables that's causing oh, uh, this. Wait a minute. As they become more complex, they become more light? liked. Liked. Higher, liked. higher rated. Higher rating on BGG. Higher rating. Thank you. Um, and a, higher rating meaning closer to one, where the rank is closer right, to one. Right, correct. So what they actually do is the way that the rank actually works, they take your BGG average rating and then put that through some stuff and then actually output the BGG rating of it, which then is ranked. Your rating of it determines how it's ranked. And so if you just do the scatter plot of that and trace it, you can see there's a pretty obvious reason that it's going up. And there's a whole myriad of reasons this is happening, right? Just talked about Arkwright. That game has 83 pages of rules in it. You don't need to read all of it, but you definitely need to read the player's book and at least one of the rule books to play it. And you probably need to at least browse the other one to see what you're missing from the other game mode. That's a lot of investment of time to learn a game. I am try to not be very biased when I like a game, but if I spent two or three hours learning it an hour teaching it to you and 45 bucks buying the game, I think I'm probably going to like that game just to try to get some weird amount of enjoyment out of something I've wasted all this time and money into. Yeah, you definitely have some uh, pride of ownership in that one, and you've got a vested interest in it being thought well of by other people. Right. The other thing being, let's take some other complicated games that we're interested in, 18xx games. Those aren't up here because I don't think they're rated enough to actually be included here, but they're heavy games that we both know a lot about. These games are are expensive. 18xx games are very expensive because they're usually handmade. They're one-offs. When you call them or when you place an order, they start making it at that point in time. So you're paying for man hours. You're paying for delay. Most of these people don't do it as a full-time gig. As games get a little more heavier, they cost a little bit more money. Think of some lighter games, code names, patchwork, um, hell, Seven Waters Duel. Those are all pretty, pretty accessible games. Compare that to the other ones, the heavier games, they usually get more expensive or they become harder to find. And then you have to pay BGG prices for aftermarket. It gets way more expensive. So it also so self-selection pop, pop there. Continue. I apologize, Mark. What is the heaviest game in the top 100? Um, I think it's I think it's Gaia Project. Not correct. Are you quite a bit heavier? You're not even not even close. Food chain? No, food chains is food. Food chains lighter than than that. Food chain magnet coming in at four point two one. It's Lisboa. It is Lisboa. Lisboa. It's a four point five one. Which is amazingly that that that's sitting at number eighty nine right that's now. Crazy. Which for a game that's rated at four point five one in difficulty is quite an achievement. Right. So what Dinesh did, as I was saying, he flattened out this curve and kind of rearranged. The complexity bias is what he calls it. And it's really interesting to see what games changed. 
what's interesting is Pandemic Legacy Season 1 went from the second place on BGG, popped back up to first. First, it's just like it was in 2017, which makes sense. That game's pretty accessible. People really like it. It's got a lot of votes. It is. I, it has a perfect 10 for me on Board Game Geek. It was one of the best game experiences I've ever had. But there's other ones that jumped a whole bunch just due to their lightness. Let's pop those up. We got Codenames. That's number two in the corrected thing, which totally makes sense. You can play that with anyone in the world. You don't even have to teach them the rules. They just watch you play once. Then they can hop in later. Seven Wonders Duel stays up high. Crokinole comes up from Place 69 originally, which is a flicking game from Canada originally. Comes up to Place 5. And then Patchwork as well pops up. The ones that I think is really interesting, though, and again, I suggest reading this article, is the games that we perceive as heavy that stay up there. So that's Gloomhaven. To me, those those games are really the best games because they're killing it both in technical achievement as well as popularity and accessibility. Right. So those games, just to give a quick highlight of a few of them, Gloomhaven went from first BGG originally before it was corrected to fourth place on the corrected list, which means that people still really like Gloomhaven with a game with hundreds of hours of playtime in there and pretty heavy rules. I I mean, they kind of make sense, but it stays up there. Terraforming Mars went from sixth place on the original BGG to 16th, which I love Terraforming Mars. It's one of my favorite games. You have some different opinions on it, but that also, I think, speaks to its I, wonders. I believe it overstays its welcome. Yeah. Pretty regularly. That might be a group thing, but you're, you're, I, you're it, I love the theme. I love the concept. I like the game. Uh, it it overstays its welcome really bad. And I and I agree. It's a different right. experience based on who I played with. But it certainly lets people like there's a group of people that I will not ever play that game. <laughs> allow with, them yeah. to draft the cards. Yeah, I, I probably won't play with them, but I won't. I definitely won't play with them if we're drafting right. the cards. And I will definitely spot a few points on the line because <laughs> otherwise I have played. I have played six hour games at yeah, six no player thanks. terraforming we Mars would, and I'm, I'm bored silly. Me and my family, whenever we play it, we play it three player usually and we just are aggressively mean to each other. And if we're taking too much time, it is action after action after action <laughs> as fast as we go. The final one that I think really speaks to its merits of it is Mansions of Madness. So this game is an app driven game by Fantasy Flight that's pretty expensive, comes in a pretty big box. And I don't think you need an iPad to play, but you definitely need a phone. And so it's not super accessible. Yeah, you need some sort of device. And right. it went from 10 originally on the original BGG or 19 on the original BGG up to 10. And I think that speaks to its merits of being just a well-liked game, even though it's kind of hard to get at. Yeah, I have not played this game at all. Um, you know, I saw I saw it for the first time being played at um, Klopcon this fall at about two in the morning. <laughs> There was Uncle Kirk was playing it along with uh, Brian the Twin and uh, a few other people. And man, they were they were they looked like they were having a great time. And I actually was a little jealous. I wasn't playing it along with them, but uh, I would certainly give it a whirl. But I just I, it never comes out and never comes up. I don't you know, I don't own a copy of it. And so I have no experience. Right. I've played it once. I'd love to play it again. But I think the thing that we can really take away from this analysis is a kind of interesting question. Are heavier games better than non-heavy games? Well, I think that's a bit like saying, is Thanksgiving dinner better than pizza? Yes. I could eat Thanksgiving dinner every day. I'm a weirdo. Sounds like it, but if you ate it every, you know, I, I think it's such a subjective measurement. 
that some people, yeah, they're going to prefer turkey. Other people are, would rather have Thai. Other people would rather eat something different every day. Right. Are heavy games objectively better? I think you're highlighting a fault in the measurement system by saying Got that. It. Because they are not separating out the how likable is a game versus what its technical achievement is. Right. Look, let's let's use Rotten Tomatoes as an example for this. Rotten Tomatoes has recognized that different people are looking at different things. So that's why they have a critics rating and they have a public rating. The critics rating more often is measuring technical achievement, where if the public is rating it on the did I like the movie or didn't I? And I think the board game geek measurement would benefit by using that sort of a system and combining the averaging the two together to ultimately come up with it so that the best games are the ones that are both excellent technical achievements and are well liked. I absolutely agree. I think that this is just kind of the issue with Board Game Geek, but also I think another point about this that is interesting is not every gameplay experience that you have is ideal. I think in an ideal world if No, for sure. if I automatically get a no that everybody wants to play whatever the heck game I want to play at whatever time I want to play at the right location and everyone's charged up for it and is interested. Yeah, heavier games are better. I like them more. I like what I get out of them. I feel like you put more into it and you get more out of it. I like the usual amount of more interaction and kind of harder, longer play result that happens there. If you have a longer game, you can usually plan something longer and have a longer plan. But I mean, I play games with friends at bars a lot. I play games with people when they're tired after we had already played heavy games. We're not able to do that. And pinball is actually I'm, I'm a pinball collector and restorer on the side, by the way. And there's a nice analogy there, too, whereas the most complex, gnarliest games aren't always the most fun to play. I really appreciate a game that has a very simple rule set and is maddeningly difficult to complete. Right. So the point where you just, oh, I got I came so close. I want to try it again. Oh, so close. I want to try it again. Right. By the way, Jake, I have to put, throw a quick aside in here. I was just looking at some ratings on items that I needed to rate, and I was just punching in my six for Keyforge. And I realized that it is ranked now number 288 overall. So yay. It is number six on customizable games. Interesting. Anybody else see a problem there? It's intrinsically not customizable. Bingo. Right. <laughs> That's funny. I had to just chuckle at well, that one. I have a impatient fiance waiting for me at the airport, so I think we got to wrap this up, Mark. Any other thoughts about... We are hitting that one hour Perfect. mark right on the nose, God, so it is time to wrap look, this baby up. We look up. like we've actually planned this. Wow. I know. Who would have thought? All right. Well, we've been the Gaming Moguls. Uh, thanks for listening to us. If you want to reach out to us, please reach out to us. We just posted our first Instagram post on Gaming Moguls is the handle on Instagram. Find us there. GamingMoguls.com on our website. Yeah, absolutely. And then we can reach out to Mark at Mark at GamingMoguls.com and Jake at Jake at GamingMoguls.com. It's been great. Thanks for talking with me, Mark. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, next week, we got a special one lined up for you. It will be our year-end review. Absolutely. All of our thoughts on the year in gaming, and we're looking forward to doing that one. So, everybody, have a great night. Thanks for listening. Have a good night, everybody.